Hey, it's Jordan. I am uh, delighted to be here with uh, uh, Arizona State University law professor uh, Robert J. Miller. Uh, and you have specialized for many years in uh, Native American law, treaty rights, which uh, during my time uh, at Standing Rock a few years ago, I saw uh, there's a long history uh, in America uh, of those rights being totally disregarded. So the reason I'm having you on, and you're also a member of the, uh, you're a citizen of the Shawnee tribe of Oklahoma, uh, important to throw that in. So I wanted to set it up because the Supreme Court had a pretty uh, monumental decision this week, kind of a surprise, uh, where they upheld the treaty rights uh, of the Crow Indian tribe uh, in Montana, and they border on Wyoming. Uh, so I wanted to have you on. Uh, let's set it up. Uh, what exactly was the case that was uh, went all the way up to the Supreme Court? Yes, Clavin Herrera is a citizen of the Crow tribe, which is today located in the state of Montana. He was exercising his treaty rights to hunt in the territory the Crow Nation used to own, 30 million acres, before they sold those to the United States in 1868. And so he was prosecuted for hunting elk in the Bighorn National Forest, which now happens to be across the border in Wyoming. And he was criminally convicted. He used his uh, treaty rights to defend in the state courts, but he lost at every level and then ultimately appealed his issue to the U.S. Supreme Court. And they uh, were charging him for hunting when, like out of season or... Yes, out of season and in violation, of course, of Wyoming state law. And what his treaty claim was is that his rights are guaranteed by the United States, by the United States Constitution, and are not subject to state law. Right. So it ended up being a 5-4 decision in favor of uh, this man and the Crow tribe. Surprisingly, I mean, a lot of people obviously have reservations about the justices uh, President Trump has appointed. But Neil Gorsuch was the deciding vote, uh, and he seems to have a more, I guess the word would be sympathetic view of uh, treaty rights than, you know, the other uh, conservatives. Can you kind of talk about uh, what his uh, rationale was for siding with the liberal justices? Sure, I have several things to say about that. First, most of the tribes were pretty happy with the appointment of Justice Neil Gorsuch. He had been on the Tenth Circuit, which is in the West. It is Wyoming and Utah and Colorado, et cetera. I believe he's the only Supreme Court justice from the West. And he had been on that court for 15 years or more. And so he had written at least 10 Indian law opinions that the tribes thought were fairly favorably balanced. So, yes, even though he's a Trump appointee and might be seen as coming from the conservative side of the United States, we thought he knew Indian law and he would give Indian law decisions a fair shake. So and you and I today are only talking about this Herrera v. Wyoming case, but there was another treaty case decided about six weeks ago, once again, five to four, in which Gorsuch was the swing vote. He joined the four liberal justices, if we want to use that phrase, and he upheld the treaty rights of the Yakima people to not have to pay state taxes on transportation of goods with trucks on the highways because of language in their treaty. So now, as you said, he provides the swing vote again, joins the four liberal uh, justices in this Herrera case to uphold treaty rights. Well, that other one sounds like uh, fairly significant, too, because uh, technically 
couldn't that be a, a precedent for future cases uh, as far as state taxes? Well, each treaty, Jordan, is very relevant to the language of the treaty, the history of the treaty, the specific negotiation between the United States representative and the tribal representatives, what was said, what was understood by the Indian leaders. These are the ways that a federal court interprets an Indian treaty today. So the Yakima decision on taxation, which I think was $64 million dollars, that the state was seeking. So yes, it was a major issue, but it was based on that specific language. So it's liable not to be language that's repeated in any other of the 375 official treaties there are between the United States and Indian nations. And what was uh, in the bigger one that just went to the Supreme Court? Uh, actually, they both went to the Supreme Court, but the one we started out with, what is uh, the state of Wyoming's argument uh, why this uh, this tribe member could not hunt? Is it because uh, it's that they can they have declared it uh, public land in Wyoming and it's not does not belong to the tribe? Well, there were two reasons. The there was an earlier decision in this case by the Tenth Circuit, that federal court that Gorsuch literally came from. In 1995, in a case called Repsis, another Crow man had hunted and killed an elk in the Bighorn National Forest, and he was also criminally prosecuted, just like the current person, Clayton uh, Herrera. And the Tenth Circuit held that the Crow Treaty had been abrogated, and abrogated for two reasons. One was abrogated by the mere fact that Wyoming became a state. And in the law, we call this the equal footing doctrine. This is what the United States Supreme Court has long held. When a new state comes into the union, it comes in on an equal footing with the original 13 states. It must have the same rights as a state has. And so for a long time, from a case from 1896 called Ward versus Racehorse, the Supreme Court had said that treaty right, Indian treaty rights, were subject to the equal footing doctrine when a new state came into the Union, maybe Indian treaty rights disappeared. Now, there's a second reason that Repsis Court from 1995 said that Mr. Repsis had lost his treaty rights under the Crow Treaty of 1868. I can almost quote you exactly the language, but it was something like that the Crow would have this right to hunt as long as the United States owned the land and as long as it was unoccupied whatever that means, the treaty doesn't define the word unoccupied. And as long as there was game there and there was peace between the Crow and the United States. And what the Tenth Circuit had said in 1995 was the fact that the United States turned that land into the Bighorn National Forest, the land was now occupied. Now, I've been a professor since well before 95. I thought that was a joke when the Tenth Circuit said that in 95. How can forest land where no one can live, no one can farm, you and I can go there to hike, you and I can hunt there, you and I can do a few different things, but we can't live there without the permission of the United States. How can that be considered occupied land? But this is why the lower Wyoming state courts thought that Mr. Herrera had lost his treaty rights and could be criminally prosecuted. So when you, when you expand this, I mean, I was at Standing Rock, so you have a pipeline going through their land by, uh, in that case, I think it was the 18, 
uh, I forgot, 1851, I think, was the original treaty uh, for Standing Rock. So if you have, in America, pipelines going through land that is by treaties of the uh, 1800s, uh, Native American tribes land, we also have, uh, not only in the case of Standing Rock, but we have mining going on uh, in a lot of tribes' um, land by treaty. Uh, you also have um, uh, fracking that they're trying to do, uh, talking about bears, bears' ears in Utah. Uh, I know you said it goes by each independent treaty, but can tribes now have a little bit more hope that if they could get something to the Supreme Court, I'm, I'm looking at things like Standing Rock, which is a treaty land, uh, and, and other um, cases where basically between the Trump administration and the oil companies, they're, they're having the run of the place, fracking, mining, you name it. Uh, can we see more cases uh, that the tribes file? Uh, it's not just the tribes with environmental groups and things like that uh, go all the way up to the Supreme Court. Yes, it's I mean, that's why these last two decisions, the Yakima decision about th six weeks ago, I think, and then this decision of Herrera from Monday. This is very powerful that the Supreme Court is sticking to the promises that the United States made 150 years ago. It doesn't matter how old those promises are. The Supreme Court said in 1979 that treaties between nations, and then they even said as between the United States and Indian nations, is a contract. So treaties are to be interpreted like a contract. And the tribes sold lots of lands, lots of assets. They gave up some of their rights to the United States for promises of payment, promises of schools, promises of health care, and as this case, promises of a right to still be allowed to hunt off reservation. And so those promises must be complied with just as any contract that you and I might sign. It doesn't matter if it's 150 years old. It's still a valid contract. And these treaties are the supreme law of the land, according to Article 6 of the United States Constitution. So it's very exciting to me as an Indian law practitioner and professor that Gorsuch has joined the four justices on the left wing of the court and that these uh, treaties are being upheld. But what this makes us all worry about is the health of some of the Supreme Court justices and the age, and I believe the two liberal justices are the oldest and might be the next to retire. And so you've already mentioned the point, who will appoint the next justices? So a 5-4 decision in the Yakima case, a 5-4 decision in this Herrera case on Monday could easily change. So it is frightening to watch you know, the makeup, the composition of the court when we have so much invested in its decisions. Now, let me ask you a question. And this might be totally stupid, but I just don't get it. In some uh, Supreme Court decisions, it makes sense. It's not com or even state court decisions. It makes sense. You have, you know, ideologues on every court who, are, you know, are pro-life versus uh, not pro-life. And that does influence their decisions. They could claim it doesn't, but it does. Uh, also, you know, they are, are not publicly involved with Republican or Democrat politics, but they come from that wing uh, of parties. But in this case, why is it that state courts don't see it as simple as that? It's a contract, but you have a, the, uh, somebody like Gorsuch that does. You put it very simply and how most Native Americans I've spoke to and environmentalists I've spoke to see it. Promises were made and they've been broken. So why on the state level it kept getting things like this keep getting sh shot down and you have the conservative justice because it doesn't seem to me to really be such a conservative issue to 
knock down Native American rights. I know Trump doesn't care about Native American rights, but it just doesn't make the sense to, sense to me why the conservatives on courts uh, wouldn't look at this from the lens of it's a contract. I agree with your comments, and there you, you and I would have to study all the Supreme Court cases on treaty rights and then judge who's a Republican or a Democrat appointee to see if the political divide has predetermined justice's decisions on a treaty case. I would hope that's not true. But you and I also know that a human being comes from their background and their training and their family and their religion and their culture. And if one is appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court by a Republican president or by a Democratic president, you probably come to that job with some preconceived notions. You're not being evil. You're not uh, being conniving. You have some basic life beliefs and positions. So, like you said, in Indian affairs and just a pure contractual relationship, one would hope that wouldn't affect your opinion. And so I really don't have a, an, a comment on this point because I would have to study the 50 or 100 treaty cases the Supreme Court has decided since 1905, since 1860s. My tribe had a treaty case in 1866 about taxation. So you'd have to study all these, see which justice had been appointed by what kind, what political party president. So I don't really want to judge on that. But your state court question, I say this in my classes. Most state court judges are elected. And so they have a tendency to want to serve the majority interests of that society. American Indians are 1% of the population, Jordan. So when you're talking, I'll tell you a few de decade or so ago, water rights for the Nez Perce people in Idaho was an extremely controversial decision. Several Idaho Supreme Court justices were not reelected because of the votes they rendered in a Nez Perce water rights case. So it can become real political on the ground when you're fighting over the assets, the timber, the water, the elk. So then it can become even more political as far as election. The federal judges are appointed for life, of course, so they aren't continually influenced by politics, but again, they come from the backgrounds they came from and perhaps who appointed them. I want you to know, if you don't know this, that a couple of the most liberal justices that probably ever served on the US Supreme Court were reported, were appointed by Republicans. Mm. William Brennan was reported, uh, appointed, excuse me, I think in 1953 by Eisenhower, and Harry Blackman, who wrote Roe versus Wade itself, was appointed by Nixon, I think, in 72. So here's a couple of Republican judges that were assumed to have certain backgrounds and political beliefs moved way to the left. Right. And it's interesting because Standing Rock is uh, near and dear to my heart. I was there seven times and they have one of their claims in some. Uh, there's many lawsuits, but one of the claims is the tribes hunting and fishing rights. Uh, in uh, in that case, Cannonball, North Dakota, but that was basically that continually has been waved off by not the Supreme Court. It hasn't gone up that high, but the uh, U.S. District Court judge in Washington D.C. So uh, it's just interesting, like we're talking about, because um, it seems like why is why is it uh, applicable in this treaty, <laughs> but not applicable in another treaty and it might be well, like you're saying i've never read the treaty for the standing rock tribe so i don't know if they have off reservation rights my understanding i did not study this issue at all you know far more about standing rock than i do 
I thought the pipeline was just a little ways off the reservation lands. So they are in, it, it is within lands the tribe ceded, sold to the U.S. a hundred and some years ago. But so I don't know if this pipeline's on reservation land, and I don't know if the tribe has off-reservation treaty rights. Their treaties are also from 1868, so it might be very similar to this Crow Treaty that just won on Monday. Right. Uh, listen, I'm no treaty expert, but I've spoken with treaty experts, and that that uh, pipeline does go through uh, their land as per the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868. So. Um, I don't want to talk out of turn, but I, I actually spoke with someone when I was there in 2016. Uh, the New York Times picked up our conversation, and he was a treaty uh, native lawyer like yourself, uh, or expert like yourself, and uh, it does go through their land. I, wanted to also, right. I also wanted to ask you, uh, extending past this decision, what are some of the other uh, main legal issues that people would know about that tribes are dealing with that are going up to courts? Because obviously... Uh, some of their um, aid has been cut by the Trump administration. Uh, they are, live in poverty, educational resources, health, nutritional. What are some other things uh, that are uh, really pressing matters that Native Americans might have are going to court for or might have to go to court for? Well, before I forget, let me tell you, there's another Indian law issue that is in front of the U.S. Supreme Court right now. Okay. And it's such a controversial decision that it'll probably be one of the last opinions we hear at the end of June. The court's term usually ends in June, end of June, and starts the first Monday in October. So they usually the hard cases are held to the end while the court might be fighting over it. So there's a it was a murder conviction, and the question was, did the murder occur in Indian country? There's a legal definition for that. The lands that are considered Indian lands, Indian country, where a tribal government has jurisdiction, etc. A large portion of the eastern part of Oklahoma is at issue of being determined to be Indian country. Mm. And referring to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals that we were talking about with Judge Gorsuch and that Repsis case, the Tenth Circuit has already held that a vast, perhaps 1.8 million acres is the number I'm remembering, of eastern Oklahoma will be within the Creek Nation boundaries if the Supreme Court affirms the case. It's called Carpenter versus Murphy, or Murphy versus Carpenter, I believe. And we're expecting a decision just any day. And so I don't know how this will turn out because this is political as can be because the state of Oklahoma is just screaming that this is going to cost them criminal jurisdiction, going to make uh, convicted people be let out of prison because they've been prosecuted perhaps by the wrong government. And so this is a big, big issue. Now, you mentioned some of the others. Indian country faces enormous issues and a breadth of them. And Congress is probably looking at any one time at 20 or 30 different bills on Indian issues. Most people are unaware of how much the federal Congress and the federal government have to deal with Indian affairs because of the treaties, because of our history, and because tribes are nations that have this relationship with the United States. You mentioned health care. You mentioned the Trump proposed budget wanting to cut some things. Uh, I see there's going to be a couple of conferences about the decimation, the economic decimation that happened in Indian country because of the government shutdown for, mm. what was it, 35 days yep. back in January. So these federal monies that people need for health care and for the policing, even, a lot of reservations, their police are still provided by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So we're talking law and order, we're talking the operation of courts, the operation of tribal governments, healthcare, schools. The Bureau of Indian Affairs runs lots of schools in Indian country. 
So these things were severely impacted. So this is my main issue. What I write about is economic development in Indian country, and I advocate for tribal communities to create their own private sectors, keep that dollar on the reservation circulating between businesses, etc. Why do I do that? Not just because I'm interested in big money or something. I want our communities to be livable, and I want us to be less dependent on the United States. Because I make this statement in my speeches, Jordan, I go, okay, we've relied on these treaty promises, we've tried to blame the United States, or we've demanded the United States fulfill its duties. Where has it gotten us in 200 years? Right. We're the poorest people, the sickest people, the least educated people. We've got to do this ourselves. So to me, that's my big message. Trump or Obama as president, whatever. Feds can help us, great. But boy, we've got to do this on our own so that we do it the way we want it done. And we want it done to some high level, not just to some mediocre, bare survival level. Well, I also think uh, one of the things that gets no attention is the government is basically taking advantage of the natural resources under, you know, on these reservations. I mean, I'm not a fan of fracking. I'm not a fan of mining. Uh, I'm not a fan of any of that stuff. But it's usually uh, a lot of these natural, a lot of these resources that the government is trampling over reservations, even if even if it's a you know a couple miles down the road, uh, are near uh, Native American reservations, and you see a lot of Native Americans getting high rates of cancer and things like that, specifically from mining. So uh, I wanted to ask you, is is there something to be said for? I mean, it's unprecedented. Uh, it's not just. It didn't just begin under Trump, but it's un I mean, he's chopped off 85 percent of Bears Ears uh, National Monument in Utah uh, to extract and frack. Uh, how how can Native Americans really fight back uh, against this under Trump? But per- period, uh, period. Yeah, period is exactly right. So let me cite you a few things. I mean, what you've asked is could be a book. It's yeah. hard for me to respond just real briefly. But the federal government did a study of Indian water rights, I believe, back in the 70s. And there was a phrase from that report that the United States had treated Indian lands as a national sacrifice area. Now, you may not even be aware, and the most of the public isn't, that something like 50% of the uranium mining in the United States happens on reservations, and certainly did in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Navajo people suffer to this very day, people in the plains, the Lakota peoples, those are the two main areas where uranium mining was done. And so that's where this idea of a national sacrifice area. Indians, I already said it once, you're 1% of the population. A lot of Indians don't get politically involved, and so their voice isn't heard. And boy, where can you take stuff? So the Trump administration, when they first uh, formed those early bodies, I forget what you call that, the transition team, I think. They had a native congressman from Oklahoma who is a Republican, and he made some comment that has been kept pretty quiet since then, but he said the Trump administration would be pro-privatizing all the Indian rights, assets, land, water, trees, minerals, what you mentioned, oil, etc. And I know what the thinking is, is that once those rights are taken from the tribal collective ownership and put into individual ownership, that it can now be purchased or acquired somehow. Mm-hmm. If you know Indian affairs, this is the allotment era when Indian lands were taken from tribal communal ownership, put into private ownership, and wow, somehow those Indian lands were lost to the owner to Americans and lost from Indian ownership. 
So the Trump administration is, it doesn't seem like has said too much about this since then, but that's how they came into office. Right. And also, I mean, one thing that doesn't get a lot of attention. So a lot of these Native American reservations, one of their biggest economic um, incomes is uh, their casinos, their casinos, sometimes hotels. I know in Standing Rock, the protests and all the influx there and the political heat that the tribe got really decimated a lot of the money they were bringing in. I think it got cut in half uh, a year or two after Standing Rock because people just weren't coming uh, to their casino slash hotel because they were pro-pipeline and all this. Um, so do we see any of that stuff happening elsewhere, that normal uh, economic uh, means for Native Americans? Um, obviously, we'd like it to be more than casinos, <laughs> but uh, do we see any, any political threats where there, there's been boycotts in areas that Native Americans are uh, you know, fighting for their rights. I'm unaware of too much of that. Maybe it would be so localized yeah. and a problem just with one small town and a tribe. Uh, a few times tribal governments themselves have had some uproar and the federal government has stepped in to close their casino because they were in violation perhaps of some of the regulations under the National Indian Gaming Commission. Uh, but, yeah, I'm not aware of the public too much boycotting Indian economic activities, and that's news to me about Standing Rock. Maybe people were almost even afraid to go to the area just because of the, all the police presence mm -hmm. and what saw as great big crowds of protesters. Do you think that's possible? Yeah, definitely I know that uh, there was a political boycott from people in the surrounding towns that, huh? in my experience, were, were – little racist towards towards the tribes and their cause. Uh, but I know since then uh, it's kind of lingered. So uh, we'll see. I, I've spoken with people in the tribe that that's a big, you know, the, yes, they got money in donations, uh, but, you know, the lingering loss of uh, business ha has hurt them. I wanted to also ask you, because one thing that hasn't gotten a lot of attention is the flooding that went on. Um, you know, we had all these crazy storms through the Midwest that I'm not going to get into too much politics, but are obviously having to do with climate change. And, uh, you know, the um, Cheyenne River Sioux tribe, uh, uh, other tribes that land, land flooded were begging for help. I mean, in South Dakota in particular, they were begging uh, for federal government assistance. You showed images of basically them, you know, paddling boats on, on their land because it was underwater. Uh, so when you're talking about lack of resources to the government shutdown, what about lack of resources for national emergencies? I mean, it, it, it's basically like Puerto Rico when you look at some of these uh, tribes and having to fend for themselves. I know very little about this. I've seen only the same articles you have. But, yeah, I'm afraid it's the squeaky wheel gets the grease, the big population where there's millions of people like Houston and New Orleans. Maybe they get the attention. But, yeah, I'm glad you brought up Puerto Rico. And so now these very small rural Indian reservations have not gotten the attention from FEMA and the federal government that they deserve and, and desperately need. Right. And my last question is, when you look at uh, 2020 politics, uh, there's been voter suppression against uh, Native Americans, particularly uh, we saw that with the North Dakota Senate race where, you know, Native Americans had to get you know, IDs and all of these things, just like they've done to African-Americans. They're putting people 
who just got their voting rights in Florida restored, felons who got their voting rights restored. They have to pay all sorts of fees, essentially a poll tax. Are we seeing uh, uh, in other reservations an increase in terms of those kinds of suppressive uh, tactics uh, to suppress Native American uh, voting turnout, not just for 2020, but you know, local elections too? Yes, this is not something I'm an expert on. I work with Professor Patty Ferguson Bonney, and she is an expert on this. She runs the Native Vote 2020 program in Arizona and even more broadly across the U.S. Indian peoples have always been attacked when they try to vote. There's always been language problems. Uh, Patty, Professor Ferguson, knows far more than I do about this. But Indian peoples were made U.S. citizens in 1924, Jordan, all of them. Some Indians were citizens before that. But my mother and others were made citizens in 1924. But most states would not allow Indians to vote because they said, hey, you might be a U.S. citizen, but you're not a state citizen. So as late as 1967, Indians in Maine were not allowed to vote. In Arizona, they weren't allowed to vote till 1948 and in New Mexico, not until 1956. So there's been long a problem, what you just mentioned, maybe accidental uh, uh, voter suppression and maybe purposeful. Again, the native people, there's so few people that if you're gonna suppress a minority vote, I think you think of other minorities to suppress before American Indians. But Indian people do need to vote more. They need to have their voice heard and language issue, where your polls are located, And I think you mentioned this already. How about for Indians that live on a reservation with no fixed address? That's been a big problem in uh, in Arizona. And Professor Ferguson, my friend, is currently involved in a lawsuit for the Navajo Nation on some of the issue, these election issues. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, Robert J. Miller, you're a professor uh, of Native American law uh, law, but you specialize in Native American law. Arizona State University and uh, a member of the Shawnee Tribe of Oklahoma. So we'd love to stay in touch uh, as uh, these other decisions uh, you mentioned uh, are coming up because uh, it's important. It doesn't get enough attention, and uh, I think it's a really important issue. Thank you. I would be glad to come back to talk with you when this Murphy v. Carpenter case comes up. <laughs> Great. Take care. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed that last video. Hop on over to statuscoup.com where you can sign up for our email list and become a member for as low as five to ten dollars a month. Membership is how we grow. That's statuscoup.com slash join. And remember, join our email list so we can grow the revolution with you.